This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host, Pat McMahon. Oh, yeah, your host is Pat McMahon, but your guests are the ones with the experiences that they've had, good and bad. They are the authors, the co-authors of a book that I just discovered the past week, Surviving God on The God Show. Isn't that an intriguing title? Subtitle, A New Vision of God Through the Eyes of Sexual Abuse Survivors. Not just our guests, Grace G. Sun Kim and Susan Shaw, uh, but uh, a number of other stories that make this a living thing, this book. Uh, Grace and Susan, you're both published academics, ordained ministers, and survivors of sexual abuse. Reading about your struggles with the patriarchy in our society, I'm going to start this by asking this single question I don't think I've ever asked another guest. With all of the horrors that I read about in your book, perpetrated on women of different ages. What's wrong with men? <laughs> oh boy, I, I've never had anybody put it that way quite, but uh, um, I, I, I can jump in a little bit. And I think it's it's not men per se, it's patriarchy and what the, the damage that patriarchy does both to men and women and other f- folks as well um, b- because it shapes us in particular ways and granted the effects are different. And so part of it is men are damaged so that they become beings who often need to exert power, uh, particularly power over women, children, uh, feminized men. And one of the ways that happens uh, is through sexual abuse. And so I think it's the system that tells men they have to be dominant, they have to be powerful, they can't show weakness. And uh, so they, they, they dominate through uh, sexual abuse, uh, rape, uh, and other forms of violence. But Grace, who, yeah, who is it? the words out of my mouth. <laughs> well, who is, it, who is it that's responsible, though, Grace, for that damage that's done to a gender? Well, I think it's a system that's been set up for so long. You know, I deal with racism and sexism all the time. So, you know, when I'm talking about racism, it's not that I hate white people. It's the system that's set up to oppress the people of color. So it's the same way with uh, patriarchy and what men do. The system is set up. It's not like we hate men, we need men, and, and you know, I'm married to a man and have two sons. It's not that we hate men, it's the system that's set up, the patriarchy that's been embedded in our culture, our country, our society for so long, which allows these types of behavior to, to perpetuate, to continue, and with very little consequences. So that's why it continues to happen. So it is the system. So, you know, when we write and when we think and we're when we're doing theology, so much of us 
uh, we are trying to uh, dismantle patriarchy because that's what is causing all of this. You and Susan have so much in common and the interwoven lives continue to be a part of the drama of the book Surviving God. But one of the things that Susan didn't experience is the racism that you did from the time that you were a child as a, uh, as a child of Korean parents. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, but, you know, we co-wrote another book, Intersectional Theology, and, you know, our identities, it's multidimensional. So, yes, I am a woman, and I am Korean, I'm immigrant, but there's other identities that intersect and can oppress, whether it be, you know, your identity, your age, your ableism, your sexual identity, your gender identity, your economic, your education, all of these. So while Susan didn't experience that, there's other forms of oppression that she and I have experienced in different ways and in similar ways. And I would say what I did experience was socialization into white dominance. And so what I've had to do is really um, find ways to become anti-racist and to overcome those ways that I was taught uh, white supremacy. And so that's sort of the effect on, of, of race on me. And I think that, that that's similar to what happens to men, is men are socialized into male dominance. And so I think part of men's responsibility is to examine that male dominance and, and work to overcome it and to dismantle patriarchy in the same way I think white folks need to dismantle racism. But you, as a white person, are uh, in the majority, but you're also in the minority when it comes to the difference that you have in your two respective families, because Grace is married to a woman, uh, Grace is married to a man, and you, Susan, are married to a woman. Absolutely, you know, and and that's something you know that only became available a few years ago, and so um, I have had to deal with that. I mean, in some ways, I'm privileged because I live in Oregon, so I live in a state where <laughs> we have had a lot of of um, support, relatively speaking. I mean, obviously, there's still a way to go, and there's still people here who are um, homophobic. Uh, but relative to other states, for example, where they're telling people they can't even teach about, you know, LGBTQ lives in schools, Oregon's relatively safe, particularly the Willamette Valley, where I am. And so in that way, while I certainly deal with the effects of homophobia, where I live um, sort of um, protects me from some of them. Now, I'm from Georgia, though, so when I go home, it's a different world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the difference between Oregon politics and Georgia politics? Well, we could do a program about that, couldn't we, yeah, Susan? Indeed. <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. Grace, uh, do you be, this is the God Show after all, and, and both of you are not only professorial, but you're also ministerial. Um, do you have difficulty with the reality that some of the things that we're talking about, no, a lot of the things that we're talking about, uh, the genderizing of lives, the roots are uh, focused on Christianity. Yes. Does that, does that make your life more difficult? I don't know if it's making my life more difficult, but, uh, you know, there's just so much to do. Uh, you know, it's this never-ending work because the church itself is patriarchal. Um, 
you know, many of the world religions are patriarchal. You know, we continue to talk about a white male God. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done because, as you know, the churches are declining and, you know, more women attend than men. So how are we going to feed the spirituality of people in the pews? How are we going to address a God who is spirit? So in so many ways, non-gendered and non-racialized, but church history has continued to preach and teach and write about a gendered and racialized God. So um, there's a lot of work to be done. And, you know, we addressed some of it here. We addressed some of it in our previous book. And we will probably continue to address. We're going to um, write our third book together. So we will probably continue to address it. Um, it's an important issue because how we view God, how we understand God in the pews really affects our own behavior, our, you know, how people create laws, our legislation. Um, it, it, it affects what we're going to wear, what we're going to eat, how we live. So I think understanding God is crucial. So, you know, our book is a and it is an attempt to understand God in light of sexual abuse, which is prevalent in our society and in our churches and faith communities. Growing up as you did, you and Susan, in dramatically different environments, let's get this out of the way because the subtitle of Surviving God, the book that we're talking about, Subtitle, I remind everybody, is A New Vision of God Through the Eyes of Sexual Abuse Survivors. And those stories in your respective families are very different. Grace, please, if you will, let's get it out of the way and tell your story about your own personal uh, abuse. Yeah, although I included, I don't go into too much detail. Please don't. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so it, it's still very difficult to talk about, I think, you know, I think both Susan and I, it's kind of one, well, at least for me, it's the first time kind of opening up and writing about it. Um, you know, we do write that in certain cultures, it's really taboo to talk about it. And that's true for uh, many immigrant uh, families and communities and churches. And maybe and, most particularly from Asia. Yeah, particularly from Asia. Um, even in Asia, uh, the different countries, it's really difficult to talk about it. So because of that, you know, it it still continues to be difficult. And this has happened so long ago, but it's still something that I, you know, I struggled with writing in the book. And even right now, as I speak and share, it's a continual struggle to talk about, especially as an immigrant. But I think that the audience needs to know things that are germane to the topic in their lives, too. For example, how old you were? Mm -hmm. um, I was a younger um, child and teenage. So, you know, it happens to many women, uh, young children and youth, but it also happens to adults. We see this in the news constantly. And many of us victims have such a hard time to talk about it that it takes years, decades, and some of us are never able to share our stories and our experiences because 
uh, the trauma is there, the taboo. Uh, we feel it happened so long ago, so why bring it up? There's many multiple issues, and so it's really difficult. But it happens at every age. But when we think about young children and youth, they're the most vulnerable. So we really need to talk about that, particularly in our churches. I know many denominations have a screening process for youth workers and ordained uh, ministers if they're dealing with young kids and youth. But sometimes they still, the screening, maybe there's a failure or people just still continue to abuse. And the only reason that I pursue this at all, and this is the last question I'll ask, about your personal experience, Grace, and that is uh, simply as uh, an acknowledgement that this kind of thing not only happens all too frequently and so commonly, uh, but it happens in and out of families. So may I ask you, please, just simply to answer the question, was this a family member uh, or someone outside of your family? No, it was outside. Okay. And you, Susan? It's funny. Grace started off talking about how hard this is. And the minute you asked the question, my stomach just knotted up. Oh. Even though, you know, I again, I, I teach this stuff. I mean, women, gender, sexuality studies, I talk about it. And yet still, all these years later, uh, I realize the difficulty. And so I know that, that for most survivors, it's hard. Um, I was I was a preteenager and teenager when when I was abused and this was the 1970s and so nobody was talking mm -hmm. about these things back then and so I didn't have any framework to understand really what what, what was happening to me uh, and in the book I talk about you know so carrying a lot of guilt myself about it even though it wasn't my responsibility to stop it. Uh, and so so it was it was difficult. And I don't give many details because um my abuser is no longer living, but other people are yes. whom I don't want to have to be identified yet. Absolutely. And so I'll just leave it at that to say, you know, it, it was an experience that went on for about five years. Oh. And so, uh, the uh, the the experience ripples though i mean here i am i'm i'm 63 years old now and uh you know the the experience continues and your stomach and your stomach still turns when the subject <laughs> yes. comes up yeah. yes and, and i'll say that because i want other survivors to know that no matter how much you do this work of course you still have these feelings and it's okay you know that that you don't need to feel bad about still feeling bad <laughs> that it's all right no, and, and and on this program, we really do try to avoid uh, the unnecessary details, uh, but uh, because they still live with you, and every story is different, isn't it? It is. It is. Uh, there are common themes, but every story is also quite unique. Well, two of the common things that you talk about often are the words trust and obey. <laughs> uh, pursue that, Grace and Susan, if you will. Susan, you can go ahead first. Yeah, yeah I mean, one of our chapters is entitled that because those were the earliest messages we got from the church. And, and they play a profound role, I think, in the experience of survivors because we were taught 
that, you know, God was all powerful and we Mm. were to trust and obey God and therefore to trust and obey the men who stood in the stead of God. And, And let me acknowledge that certainly women can be and are abusers, but when we look at the numbers, you know, this is by far um, uh, an experience that is perpetrated by men on on others, and primarily women and children, both boys and girls, and and of course I always want to include transgender and non-binary folks in that as well, who experience sexual abuse in other particular ways. Um, and so I think because of that, you know, when when powerful people, powerful men commit these acts, you know, who are we to question? Who are we to say no, uh, particularly as children? But this happens, as Grace mentioned, to adults. And, you know, there there are all these stories coming out now about women who have been abused by their past, their male pastors when they go in for counseling. Mm. Um, Mm. And it's just hard to say no to somebody you've been told stands in God's stead with you. Is that what you both meant when you decided on the title Surviving God? Uh, when you just talk about surviving the pastor, the priest, the preacher, uh, who is uh, also uh, a hunter. Mm. I can't remember. I think, Susan, you came up with the title. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't remember how we came up with it. Yeah, because I think... Um, that that those people um, distorted our images of God. And so we had to survive that. We had to survive, first of all, this God we were told to trust and obey, who was all-powerful and could do anything to us, including send us to hell for eternity. But then we also had to survive that God who was so damaged by men who perpetrated these acts on us. And so while I I didn't see them as God, I certainly questioned how how they represented God and it, what that meant about God. But <laughs> Susan, Susan, weren't you God. weren't you surprised though that uh, in any case, even the ones you read about or you were uh, you were introduced to by people that were involved in your counseling efforts, that that a minister of the Lord that a representative of the holy words of the Bible could be so predatory. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it. In one way, it is shocking, and in another, given what I know about power and patriarchy and social institutions, it's really not. Uh, but but I think we we just want to expect better of people who call themselves Christian. And yet we know that Christian men abuse at the same rates as all other men. Uh, So obviously being Christian does not make a difference in this. And I think we need to be asking why and what's going on, what's the church doing and not doing that means that Christian men are no different than other men in their propensity to abuse women, children, and others. So Grace, when it comes to the Bible itself, isn't it jam-packed with examples of patriarchy? Yes, and that's the problem that we're dealing with. It was mostly written by men within a patriarchal culture, uh, portraying a very patriarchal God. So, you know, we are human beings in our own limited ways. We are finite. We will die. 
And we are trying to understand this infinite being a creator, a lover, um, our savior, whatever way you want to name this divine being. And so it's limited. So we must understand the culture and context that the scriptures were written in and how they were written. We cannot put that aside. I know so many Christians, oh, that that doesn't matter. Of course it matters because understanding the culture, the context, and who the writers were and to whom they were writing, that helps us interpret and understand scripture. And going back to surviving God, I think we've just have so many distorted images and understandings of who God is that allows abuse to happen. So a uh, feminist uh, scholar, Mary Daly, um, who taught in Boston, she said, if God is male, then the male is God. Mm. So, so many men in the church, particularly ministers, act like they're God and they abuse people on the pews over and over again, either mentally, physically, or in other spiritual ways. This is very dangerous practices that we see across denomination, across ethnic boundaries. It just happens because of this patriarchy that we began this whole show on. Patriarchy allows something like this to happen. And we do have other beautiful images of who God is, but a patriarchal church, a patriarchal religion will just focus on the patriarchal aspect of God, a God who engages in war, all these barbaric kind of ways of viewing God, which is very damaging because it continues to say men can abuse women. And we know this is wrong. But churches have said it's okay because you belong to your husband or you belong to your father, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So what they're doing is fine. And this has happened throughout Christian history. What we're trying to do in our book, Surviving God, is saying this is unacceptable. This is not the loving kingdom of God that God is talking about. You know, God is not this patriarchal, scary, war-mongering God. God is a God of love, and that's throughout the scripture. So why don't we focus on the beautiful, life-giving, uh, wonderful images of God rather than these terrible images which continue to perpetuate this horrific acts of abuse in our churches, families, faith communities, organizations, schools, everywhere. We're talking with Grace G. Sun Kim and Susan M. Shaw, academics. Uh, they are ordained ministers, and I'm delighted that they're my guests and yours on The God Show. The book is Surviving God. And Susan, it must be confusing if we're talking about to someone like you, as an ordained minister, uh, it must be confusing if the Bible is considered to be the Word of God, and that just probably isn't much more powerful word than that, if we recognize the fact that Grace's marriage is blessed in the Bible and yours isn't. <laughs> How about that? 
Well, you know, actually, I, th I think mine is. <laughs> and the reason I think that is because I think that the overriding messages of the Bible, which for me become the criterion for morality and ethics, are love and justice. And I think those two things go hand in hand. And while, I mean, I, I mean, you know, the, the institution of marriage back then is not, you know, I mean, David was married, but he had a lot of other women, you know, in the harem. I mean, it, people had multiple wives. I mean, which biblical marriage do we want to talk about? Um, it, and it wasn't what we think of today at all. And so I, I think that the, the message in that was about, you know, building loving relationships and families that sustain people and that reflect God's love in the most intimate kinds of relationships. And so I think that that falls well within line of the, the Bible's notions of love and justice. And so I would I would reclaim that for myself and, and for relationships. And good like. for you. <laughs> and marriages, as uh, Susan said, it was so different. In the Old Testament, if you were raped, you were expected to marry the rapist. You know, that was common. Nobody today will ever say that about marriage. So our marriage views and the institution of marriage has changed over time and the purpose of marriage. You know, back then it was a patriarchal society and you needed to bear children, the ma the male sons. And of course you needed a wife. And, you know, when you see all the patriarchs in the Old Testament, if they didn't produce, look at Abraham, you know, then he goes and uses his slave woman. And then, you know, all this tragedy happens. So, we have to understand the context and how marriage has changed and the use of marriage was different from today. From the two of you, I please ask you to share with our audience your stunning and compelling description of that relationship that involved the mother of Jesus, Mary. That, that was so fascinating to me the, your perspective on this, and I really would like the two of you to share that with the audience. The Virgin, capital V, the, the Virgin Mary, and tell us about your perspectives. Grace first. Well, I think, you know, I belong to the Presbyterian Church. We don't focus so much on Mary um, as much as the Catholic tradition or other denominations may. So we have totally made it into this trinity of God, uh, the maleness of God with God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who we have um, portrayed in different genders and presently kind of going back from male to neuter, back and forth. But we do have this patriarchal notion of God. I think resorting to this young virgin woman bearing the child of God and looking at the context of how did that even happen? She was unmarried, unwed, um, very, very young. And, you know, the scripture kind of talks about how she 
became pregnant with the Holy Spirit, etc., etc. But you know, we we really need to understand the context and the situation. And there are scholars who would suggest that she was probably raped at the time. Mm. And you know, but God can still use incidents like this. So. Um, you know, we have this young woman. I've been to uh, Palestine, Israel recently, and she, you know, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, where they had to travel after she was pregnant because you had to go back to your uh, husband's families to register for the census. That's a long trek. So the difficulty of this young woman who's pregnant, no cars 2,000 years ago, making that long trek, which would have taken days, and viewing how she was able to still fulfill the will of God is an amazing thing. And I think we need to focus on a lot more the feminine understanding of who God is, the feminine uh, imagery that's present in the Bible and the woman in the Bible, because the women always act differently than men. When she <laughs> found out that she was pregnant, there's no word from Joseph. Joseph does not say anything. And then when her cousin Elizabeth gets pregnant, uh, we know that her husband, uh, I, I guess it was Zachariah, he couldn't speak until the child was born. So the silencing of men during these pregnancies <laughs> are kind of astounding to me. Susan, now listen, I, listen I think of you, though, as having a, a kind of a bizarre sense of humor. And I hope that you will appreciate the fact that when I was reading the book about Mary, about in, Mary in your book, I was thinking, so Joseph goes to the Kiwanis Club for lunch <laughs> and then tells the fellas that uh, Mary, whatever her relationship is with Joseph, and they are going to have a baby. And uh, I mean, Susan, I'm sure as you have read scripture and taught scripture in your classes, that you've had some unusual focuses on on how Joseph explained to the villagers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the, I mean, there's one sense in which at that time, if they were betrothed, it would actually not have been that unusual that they were having sex. And so it could be, it could have been, you know, that, that she was pregnant by Joseph and, and, um, you know, and, and so it might have been a, you know, hey, way to go, boys. Um, you know, or there there's this story of, you know, well, this is, you know, God's baby. Uh, and I would have liked to have seen Joseph explaining that one. Um, but, but you know, in the story, as Grace said, he's really the secondary character who, um, you know, he would have had the right if if it was not his baby, you know, to have Mary put away. And in the story, we're told that the angel comes and tells him not to do that. And Joseph, you know, does does the right thing and continues his relationship with Mary. Though I imagine it could have been quite complicated at that point. Um, that's quite a lot to ask someone to believe that that you know you're you're carrying God's baby. Uh, so I think there would have been all kinds of complicated conversations going on in lots of places. Uh, at this point. And of course, we don't even hear from like Mary's parents who would have been the ones who would have betrothed her yeah. Yeah. Uh, and what they thought. <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, what did Jesus's grandparents have to say about all this? <laughs> uh, 
So I think sometimes, you know, I, I had a professor at, at, at seminary who used to talk about how we put Jesus in the stained glass window. And when we do that, we don't really sort of think about these as human beings who have the same emotions and struggles that we do. Uh, and when we do this, the stories become real in some very different ways. Uh, that's one thing I often ask my students is to step into a story and tell the story from the perspective of different characters. And I've learned so much when they when they do that because they always have interesting things to say. You know, so if they imagine themselves as Mary having this conversation with an angel, <laughs> what that must have been like for a, a girl who was probably 13, 14 years old. I would like both of you, if you will, please, to talk to the survivors that are the focus of the book. Uh, a New Vision of God Through the Eyes of Sexual Abuse Survivors. But it's a book written for survivors, not just by you two survivors. So would you both take a moment to talk to the survivors who are listening right now, somewhere in the world, uh, the Philippines, uh, uh, in, uh, in Pennsylvania and Oregon. Uh, talk to the folks who right now are deeply troubled by the fact that they don't know who to talk to. Susan? Well, the first thing I would say to, to survivors is to know that God is with you. It's not your fault. You couldn't have stopped it. You weren't responsible for it. You have nothing to repent for. And you don't need to be pressured into forgiving anybody. Um, but but God is with you. God has suffered with you. And God calls you to a, a fullness of life, to healing. And as we conclude the, the, the book, God calls you to joy. And even if you can't talk to somebody in your immediate environment, if you can read the book, you can be in conversation with us. Quite frankly, you can email us because we are not hard to find. And... Um, you know, it's important, I think, to try to find help that I think healing from abuse takes talking about it. It takes counseling. It takes communities of support. Uh, but but for me, I mean, the, the the first step to healing was was telling my my best friend when I was in my early 20s, because mm. I never said the words out loud until uh, I, till I said that to her. And in that, it was very powerful to begin that process of reimagining God so that I could see God not as this coercive power that had caused this or willed it or even allowed it, but rather as a persuasive love working in every molecule and atom of the universe to call us to love and justice. And for me, that was that was powerful and healing and something I'd go back to. I mean, it's, it's the reason I ended up not leaving the church because I was well on my way out for a lot of reasons when I reformulated God in these ways. And, and that's a powerful process is to, to find the God that you can love. And, and Grace, and, and and Grace I, I would imagine that, particularly considering the fact that uh, I would imagine every survivor listening right now would openly acknowledge the fact that they had real difficulty uh, uh, telling anyone, uh, trying to find that right person who would understand uh, all of the elements of, of abuse. But when you're talking about then you, Grace, from your Korean heritage, uh, it made it even more difficult because y you had grown up with the concept of 
you never ever acknowledge that because of the shame. Isn't that true? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for many women, it will, it will be hard. And I, you know, it's a long process. So, you know, I'm, I'm appreciating what Susan had just shared. And I would um, say the same. I think for those who are feeling really alone, um, that, you know, they shouldn't feel so alone. There are places, um, counselors that people can turn to, to seek help. Um, That's what I had done. Um, You don't have to share with the world. You don't have to tell your family. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. You just have to do what you need to do just to survive. Mm -hmm. You you know, there's no prescription of this will work, you know, or you have to do X, Y, and Z, but the guilt should not be on the on the abused and um, the onus on them to act and do stuff shouldn't be on them either. But there is help out there. And I hope uh, either reading our book or other books or seeking uh, counselors can really help people to um, start the healing process. It's a long journey. It's not an overnight thing. One book's not going to help. But certainly taking these little steps can help um, and overcome some of the uh, the pain and the fear that comes with abuse. Susan, any further advice for those who are listening right now who feel so alone? I would say don't give up. Don't give up on yourself and your ability to, to heal, even though, like Grace said, it is a slow, slow process. And um, allow yourself joy mm. uh, and, and find that where you can. I mean, sometimes the church access is the only place we can find that is in the church building. But, you know, I find it when I go for hikes or listen to ABBA or eat really good <laughs> chocolates. I mean, find that joy and let yourself feel that, experience it. How is the God that you grew up with different than the God you know now? Susan? Oh, uh, 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 night and day. Uh, the, the, the God I grew up with scared me, um, even though I was told this God loved me unconditionally. I mean, this God was going to send me to hell. So as a six-year-old, I walked the aisle, as we did in Southern Baptist tradition, to ask Jesus into my heart as my personal Lord and Savior so God wouldn't send me to hell. Uh, that was scary. Uh, and you always knew you could trip up and so you'd need to rededicate your life and all those kinds of things. Um, and, and this God controlled everything. And so that's why I had a problem with this God when I finally let myself start to think about my abuse, because I thought if this God could have stopped it and didn't, this is not a God I want anything to do with. And so that was the crisis of faith that led me to this God that I discovered in process theology who is a God of, as I said earlier, persuasive love rather than coercive power. And so this God is in every atom of the universe calling us to, to fulfill our divine aim, our uh, God's intent for us to be loving and just. And this is a God who feels with us, who walks with us, who survives with us, um, who empowers us. And so it is about as different a God as you can imagine. 
from the, the God that I was taught growing up. Well, growing up, that Southern Baptist God can be scary. Terrifying. <laughs> I had the same God, too, and so mine has changed drastically. What uh, denomination did you grow up in? Uh, Presbyterian. So, But I was taught the same white male God, uh, scary and, you know, fearful. You know, you have to fear God, but that's no longer the God. Lightning bolt is going to hit you and strike you down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and your relationship with God now must be very, very different. By the way, we've been talking about Christian denominations, but abuse goes on without any consideration of faith limitations. Uh, I mean, let's for a moment acknowledge the fact that Hindu children are abused and Buddhist children are abused and Jewish children are abused. Isn't that true, Grace? Yes. Uh So it's, as we stated earlier, it's across uh, religion, faith, community, ethnic boundaries. You know, one of the scariest parts of your book, Surviving God, was that moment when I pictured a child, a young person, not far from childhood, being held up to the abuser and saying, all you have to do is forgive him, and it's all forgotten. Susan, you're nodding with a recollection of that part of the book. Yeah, so many people experience that, you know, where the church says to the the victim, uh, you have to forgive. And we teach this cheap grace that says um, all the abuser has to do is ask God for forgiveness, and there's no expectation of of restitution or of some kind of you know, penance or, or or anything that's focused on the healing of the survivor. And then even worse, the, the survivor can be pressured to to forgive, sometimes even publicly by the, the church. And I, I think that's highly problematic and becomes a, a way that, that victims get re-traumatized. Did both of you have occasion to forgive your abusers? No. I, I did that work myself for myself, and forgiving d- did not mean that um, it was okay. It's never okay. It's never going to be okay. And for that reason, I never confronted my abuser because there was nothing that person could say that could make anything any different. And probably it would have just made me angry and and tapped into a rage I have walked, worked long and hard to to try to tamp down. Um, and, and so I did forgive, but again, that does not mean that made it okay or made everything right, or it was like it never happened. What it meant is I never, I no longer carried in my heart a desire for bad things to happen to that person. And I could feel compassion for that person. Um, even though I didn't think that meant I needed to say it's okay. I don't know whether either or both of you have received criticism for a a very, very commanding part of the book, uh, the book Surviving God, A New Vision of God Through the Eyes of Sexual Abuse Survivors. When you talk about 
Jesus and his abusers. Grace, pursue that for our audience, would you? Well, the possibility is there that he could have been abused. Well, he was abused physically, uh, mentally, um, but also um, sexually he could have been abused uh, because that is what happened during that time um, by soldiers and et cetera. So the possibility of that happening is there, of course, something like that wouldn't be in scripture. Uh, people, the writers weren't with Jesus. They would not know what have happened when he was arrested um, and during the time before crucifixion when he was alone. But the possibility is there. We know that that happens even today, um, you know, under colonialism, you know, the Jewish people were under the Roman Empire. Evil things happen, so the possibility is there. Um, the book will be out uh, in March, so we haven't had a wide readership. It's more interviews, etc., but no criticism yet. I think the scholarship is already out there of the possibility, already written by other scholars, so I don't think it'd be that alarming. The the uh, research that you did about the practices in Rome, uh, in uh, among Roman citizens in the very various uh, levels of that society, uh, were eye opening and uh, and also uh, they were uh, the kinds of things that you recognized afterwards as being probably something that was a part of that society that you hadn't thought about before. And, and it did have a direct effect on those who were involved with the mortification of Jesus. Right, Susan? Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I teach about sexual violence all the time. I know what happens when, you know, uh, groups of men have power and want to exert power over other men, what happens in war, what happens in policing. And yet somehow I had never let myself think about what might have happened to Jesus while he was being held under the Roman guard. And of course, you know, it, it makes perfectly good sense that the likelihood is that Jesus would have been sexually assaulted and possibly even raped because that is what's what happens. And it, it was like a gut punch to me to realize that uh, and, and to, to recognize it and, and to have this real strong sense of that one more form of degradation. And, and that while that gives me one more thing sort of in common, um, I didn't need that. I mean, I think this goes back to Grace and I write about theories of atonement in the book um, that, that, you know, God did not need Jesus to go through that for us. And I certainly didn't need just need Jesus to go through that for, for me. And so it, it broke my heart in new ways. Could you both uh, picture our audience being members of a class that you're teaching and, and help them protect their children from abusers? What, what do children of any age need to know to give them the strength and the background and the knowledge uh, without affecting them psychologically 
and creating a level of fear that uh, would be also damaging. Help us help our kids. Grace? Mm. Well, I think children just need to be aware that if someone does something to their bodies when they do not want it, um, it is not right. And they need to report it. Um, I know children at a young age get very scared and then they never tell anyone. The perpetrator will say it's our secret or don't tell anyone because I'm going to harm, etc. All these scary tactics are used, but I want young kids to know that this is not right. Nobody can touch you or do something to you against your will. You, you know, nobody needs to suffer that way. And I think one of the things that we, we can do is, is support that by giving children the power to say, no, I don't want to hug that person. No, I don't want to give that person a kiss. That we, as children need to know that their bodies are their own and we need to let them set those boundaries at a young age. And not say, oh, come on, give Uncle so-and-so a kiss or, you know, go 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 hug Pastor so-and-so. Yes. And if they don't want to, we shouldn't make them. Yeah, and that's such a sensitive, tiny avenue for a child to walk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just one more of those, those sort of ways that we send these subtle messages about power and who gets to control your body and who gets to do what to your body and... Um, we, we need to teach kids that. Mostly, though, we just need to teach other people not to abuse. I mean, this is the thing the church needs to be doing, is teach men and boys not to abuse. Who's doing that? Is anybody doing that effectively now in any form? <laughs> Boy, you talk about dead air. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we have two articulate, well-spoken guests, and and I'm looking at them on uh, on Zoom, and I didn't see any instant response. Uh, but I really would like to know: is there is there any form of uh, of an academic structure, or any uh, any uh, part of one's early education that is devoted to don't abuse, Grace? I don't think it's um, in our academic structure. I know there is like sexual education, but I'm not too sure if the abuse component is taught at that age, but I know we don't talk about it in the church. No, <laughs> no, because we pretend that it doesn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's part of the problem. Susan, does it exist in Christian uh, churches and uh, religions more than in others? We began to touch on other faiths, and uh, I don't know whether you want to get into percentages or not, but what has your studies told you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I think, pretty much kind of the same across the board. Grace and I don't get into that because as feminists, I think we really feel that uh, Jewish scholars need to talk about abuse in Judaism and Buddhist scholars need to talk about it in, in Buddhism. And then we, as as um, Christian feminists, can support them in that. Uh, because, yeah, it's a problem everywhere. 
religion, non-religion, um, it, it, it doesn't matter. It's just one of those things that patriarchy has provided for men and, and, and you know, let men get away with across the board. Well, let's assume that in most schools, uh, public schools, religious schools, uh, that we don't have a class in don't touch that person there. Uh, but um, but shouldn't mom and dad be the teachers of that, Grace? I think if the um, context arises, sure. I think mom and dad can do a lot of teaching. Sometimes uh, parents have a hard time doing that, but um, it should be able, we should be able to talk about it in families. Well, Susan, I, I have no doubt that uh, teaching in Oregon, as you do, you probably also have a number of, uh, of people in class uh, who uh, will acknowledge to you, perhaps even after class, sometimes privately, uh, that mom and dad never uh, talked about sexuality between men and women, much less, much less... Father O'Brien and Jimmy. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, uh, uh, people in the United States, we just are not good with this, generally speaking. I mean, culturally, we're, we're way too puritanical still. Uh, and so we don't talk about it at all. And, and we, don't, we don't have healthy sexuality. It's, it's way too shaped by pornography. And that's a whole other conversation we could have another day. Um, it, 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 and it's way too shaped by shame. And so, yeah, no, we, we, we don't have these conversations like, like we should. And so because I teach this stuff, yeah, students talk to me. A lot of times they'll talk in class. Sometimes my students will say that they, all, they will overshare in class. <laughs> uh, then, yes, they also come to me privately to say, you know, these things happen to me or Here, here's my story. Well, you said in the United States we don't do it very well. Uh, if at all, is there any culture, any society that you've studied where this conversation is held regularly with parents warning their children about the feelings that they uh, should overcome? Well, I, now I don't know how much there's education about, you know, sexual violence but certainly scandinavians are much better at talking mm. about sex and sexuality they don't have as many hang-ups as we do and i'd have to check the numbers to see if incidences of sexual assault and abuse are lower there but certainly they're able to talk about it grace you yeah. mentioned emails earlier in the show we've got exactly 45 seconds for you to brazenly tell our audience how to get in touch with either or both of you we're both on social media, so you can look for us, Susan Shaw and Grace G. Sun Kim. I'm also on Substack, so your listeners can follow me on Substack. Just look for, just Google my name, and the Substack is called Loving Life. And I have my own podcast called Madang Podcast, which is hosted by Christian Century, so people can uh, follow me there. Susan, anything to add? Yeah, I'm on the platform formerly known as Twitter is at Feminist Gadfly, and <laughs> I'm on Instagram as uh, Susan Shaw1960, and so you can follow me there as well. Or if you go through Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, Oregon, just ask for Grace G. Sun 
Kim or Susan Shaw, everybody will know them as the co-authors of Surviving God and my guests on The God Show. This is Pat McMahon.